Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky, and disturbing children's books, films, and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, and today we're talking about the 1962 novel Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. A full transcript of this episode will be available, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Enjoy! Good evening, Adam. Ahoy, hoy, hoy. And today we're talking about Something Wicked This Way Comes by the thinking man's R.L. Stein, Ray Bradbury. (laughs) (laughs) I'm familiar with his works. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, This uh, novel is from 1962 um, and described as dark fantasy. With uh, we'll touch on the film uh, as well from 1983. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a brown film. It's, it's a, a very brown film, to be honest. <laughs> it was uh, disappointingly uh, lacking in spectacle and scandal and spirit and spirit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, um, which is a shame because knowing that it was 1980s Disney children's horror i think i was expecting something in the region of return to oz i know yeah and i'd I'd heard of it spoken uh of in the same breath as return to oz um Mm. but this has no sassy belinda the chicken or uh, mumbai heads or any of that kind of stuff no i mean they must have spent all their budget on return to oz um, <laughs> yeah, well, and probably protecting themselves from being sued by MGM. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but so, we'll, we'll get on to that. Let, let's talk we'll about the book. We'll get on to that, yeah. We'll yeah. Talk about the book. Um, so our protagonists are 13-year-old neighbours, uh, Jim Nightshade and Will Halloway, who live in a town called Greentown in Illinois. Uh, it's the week before Halloween, and a travelling carnival comes to their town by night. <laughs> um, and it comes in at 3am on a train, and the, uh, the wind uh, whistles through the pipes of the calliope, uh, which is a kind of steam-powered organ, uh, traditionally used in circuses. Oh, I'm glad you looked that up, because it was a word I assumed I should already know, and so uh, out of stubborn pride didn't look it up (laughs) (laughs) so so thanks for that (laughs) 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I I didn't know how to pronounce it either, so I I thought I'd better. Yeah, I'd yeah, do the I research maybe it was on like that one. Calope or something. Mm. Yeah. Um. So, well, to to spoil it right at the start, but we're just gonna go go right in there. Um, yeah, the, the, this ain't your old mama's carnival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> It, it, it turns out that um, Cougar and Dark's Carnival has been coming to this town for over a hundred years, uh, extending the lives of the carnival proprietors through ghastly means and um, uh, sucking people from each new generation into their parade of damned souls. Um, <laughs> Basically, which... have you have you seen Twin Peaks? I can never remember. No. <laughs> okay, so the the. Um, Denizens of the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks um, all eat this porridge-like substance called Garmonbosia. Garmonbosia. Uh, which, <laughs> which is basically fear and suffering in porridge form. Okay. Um, it's green and gloopy. Uh, well, sort of a sickly yellow green. Um, and yeah, so basically the... Uh, Carnival people in this feed off Garmonbosia. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Um. It's also a very masculine novel. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. It's about fathers and sons and boys and men, um, and the sort of central relationship was with the relationship between the two boys, and then with between Will and his father. Charles, um, the, um, the 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 beautiful irascible spirit of young boys stealing <laughs> stealing apples and smashing windows and all the great things of childhood. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, to be young and wear short trousers. Um, you know, yeah. kicking squirrels in the park and setting old people alight. All of it, great <laughs> hijinks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so, um, how, how did you, um, how did you come across this? I, oh gosh, that's a good point, since I did choose it. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know, I think, I mean, obviously, the phrase, something wicked this way comes, is from Macbeth, mm. um, and in year seven, I was a witch in Macbeth. Oh, Nice. Uh, yeah, so I had to learn those those lines and a hubble, bubble, boil and trouble. And so maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe I looked up <laughs> those lines online. Like, I, I just feel like I've been aware for a long time that there's a children's novel called Something Wicked This Way Comes, long before I knew it was by Ray Bradbury or anything about it. Mm. Um, and then I suppose the film probably came up when I'd been researching for this podcast. Mm. Um but yeah, I feel like it's been bubbling in the back of my subconscious for a long time, really. Mm. I definitely feel like I was aware of it as a kid. Okay. Yeah, because I hadn't heard of it until until you mentioned it. Well, I hadn't read it or watched it, so this was the first time of reading okay. it or watching it for, for both of us. I'd only read some Bradbury short stories before, in fact. Yeah, likewise. Um, although I do think about them quite often. Um, there's one in particular about um 
about the house, the automated house that talks to you. Oh, and, um, yeah. Is that There Will Come Soft Rains? It might be. Is um, it that after an apocalypse, just the house still stands going through its ritualistic uh, cycles? Yeah, it might be that one. I know that he's done a few on that theme. Um, I remember particularly the <laughs> the the oven that says, I'm, I'm apple pie and I'm, I'm done. done. <laughs> why, why did he make it sound so smug? I just imagined it smug. <laughs> that does sound like a Bradbury with apple pie smugness. Apple that, pie smugness, That, that yeah. seems like a Bradbury term. Ah, that's great, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like that is seems uh, increasingly more appropriate with uh, smart home devices and such. Mm, yeah, that's true. Um, um, sadly, this novel isn't increasingly more appropriate there hasn't been some great rise in evil carnivals sadly <laughs> sadly <laughs> however much the people dressing up as evil clowns around halloween may wish there were mm. uh, it's just pipe dreams really yeah. Organ pipe dreams. um <laughs> so i felt i had an idea that for this um discussing this novel then we'll Pretend we're at the carnival and walk around our imaginary carnival and go to one sideshow or aspect at a time and then talk about the different, the, the bits of the novel associated with that. Oh, oh that sounds great. I want to go to the carnival. Um... <laughs> yes, let's go to the carnival, Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it has arrived. Come to the dark circus. The circus where clowns never smile. Your darkest nightmares will come to life. Oh, oh, Ren, there aren't many vegetarian food stalls. I'm going to have to have corn on the cob again. It's all just Candy hot. floss, Adam. The pure vegetarian food stuff. If I can really smell those hot dogs in the air. It's making me feel a bit nauseous, actually. <laughs> I think I shouldn't have gone off the waltzes. Yeah, well, well, we'll distract you from that by a, a visit to the Hall of Mirrors. Oh, God, you should... Oh, pre- OK, I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. It's been a long time. I did it once and I found it quite... <laughs> quite anxiety-provoking. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> I'm so, sure uh, these uh, ones will be fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the first thing, the, I mean, apart from the carnival arriving at 3am and the wind playing spooky music on the calliope, the first creepy thing that the boys encounter is the Hall of Mirrors. Um, and the first day at the carnival, they see their teacher, Miss Foley, uh, trapped in the mirror maze. And they, they pull her out and, and she's sort of frightened and babbling and says she saw a lost girl in there who, who looks a lot like herself as a child. But then she's like, oh, no, it's fine. I'm fine, boys. And then I just thought, off oh, she goes. Um, but that's our that's a, a first uh, creepy instance. Um, in the film, people seem to see themselves in the mirrors of how they wish to be. Yes. Um, for example, there's a man who's missing an arm and a leg and mm. he sees himself with all his limbs. Um, but I don't, I don't think we have that in the book. No, I mean, there's a slight hint that people are drawn into the mirror maze uh, through 
desire, basically. Mm. You know, whether it's desire to be younger or maybe desire to be rich. I don't know, but it, it's not. I mean, the book's a lot more elusive than the film. I think mm. why the film doesn't really work is it's kind of deadeningly literal. <laughs> so Bradbury's got this amazing kind of colourful, poetic, adjective, heavy writing style, um, yeah. which just feels completely steamrolled by the film. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, it's very odd and imagistic and yeah the the film really does not capture that at all for me no (laughs) no i mean the the book the writing it's like uh, it feels sort of feverish and kind of whirling and Mm. absolutely um, you can only kind of catch out of the corner of your eye like i enjoyed it the most when i was just kind of letting it flow over me and not even necessarily mm. trying to grab all the literal images but you know it, it, yeah it's because it uses imagery and metaphor in this very loose way mm-hmm. like there's a bit later where it's described faces the color of beds <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> yeah i mean I, I know that i know there was that uh Lyric by your favourite band Keen. <laughs> <laughs> um, be- bed shaped your your limbs of stone. So yeah. I don't I don't know this, but I mean I can maybe you know a face like a bed. But what's the, what's the colour of you don't get a paint sample? <laughs> the the colour of bed. <laughs> but some of it kind of makes it an intuitive. I don't know about that line, but a lot of it makes this sort of feverish intuitive sense that you can't look at too straight on or else it Uh seems to disintegrate (laughs) yeah um so yeah there's definitely the suggestion in the book that there's something sort of mesmerizing and horrifying in the mirror maze um it's not it's not obvious what they actually see um no jim wanders in um and uh, Will sort of follows him and finds him and it says Jim was there half in half out of the cold glass tides like someone abandoned on a seashore when a close friend has gone far out and there is wonder if he will ever come back. Jim stood as if he had not moved so much as an eyelash in five minutes staring his mouth half open waiting for the next wave to come in and show him more. Um, yeah uh, <laughs> so Jim Jim is a bit of a bad boy. Um, <laughs> he, 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 des- he desperately wants to grow up and be older, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this passage early on in the novel uh, in which Jim takes Will out to spy on, um, I guess, people having sex in a bedroom in a house, right? <laughs> That seems oh, yeah, to be what's happening. Yeah, yeah, like, he's a little voyeur. And Will's mm. like, come on, Jim, I don't want to. Go on. And Jim's like, no, no. Yeah, let's do it. And yeah, Will's... Just one more time. Yeah, yeah. And, and Will's <laughs> quite troubled by it and doesn't mm. want to. Um, they kind of play that out a bit differently in the film. Instead, it's a, um, a sort of exotic dance display or something oh, in one yeah. of the tents that they, they're caught peeping 
peeping at. Um, mm. But yeah, you get the sense that Will is quite happy in, um, you know, his boyhood games and feeling safe and cosy in the innocence of childhood, whereas Jim has this kind of darker edge to him and that mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he wants the experience of adulthood, that he, he desperately wants the things that are whispered about behind closed doors. And you know, yeah. he wants he wants to know these things sooner rather than later. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we're talking about that, shall we shall we leave the Hall of Mirrors and uh, take a stroll over to the carousel? Yeah. Uh, although, which way is it turning? Clockwise or anti-clockwise? <laughs> um, so. But how how do you feel about carousels? Do you like them? Uh... Yes, although I do get very easily motion sick, so it's sort of a bit of a love-hate relationship. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I, as a kid, there was one at Bressingham Steam Museum that I was really scared of because it had a dragon on the top. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find it quite disturbing how it often looks like the horses are trying to bolt. That They tend to look spooked, right? Like the horse mm-hmm. expressions, they tend to look in a state of terror which I find quite <laughs> odd and disturbing. Um, I like the one I remember going on one in France as a kid, or Leon and Phoebe going on one in France, and I think this is more of a European tradition of having, like, a toy or a piñata, like, dangling down, mm. um, or something like, you know, from a, from a, a, a rope or, or some elastic or whatever, and then kids having to try to grab it or hit it as they go, <laughs> go round on the carousel. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's something I, I, I think I might have seen once. I think in this country, <laughs> but I, I don't think it's that common here. But um, yeah, I thought that that kind of livened it up, you know, being able mm. to also read. It's quite dangerous, of course, because you just yeah. to tumble <laughs> off the horse. <laughs> <laughs> All the fun of the fair, though, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so this this carnival carousel is. Uh, is, a, is an important thing in the book um, because it sort of becomes the the central image of uh, all the, the characters' anxieties and desires about age and growing up and aging. And um, on the on the first day of the carnival, the boys find the carousel with a sign that says "Out of order, keep off." Um, and I just want to read the, the, the description when we first encounter it, um, or they first encounter it. Uh, it's horses, goats, antelope, zebras, speared through their spines with brass javelins, hung contorted as in a death rictus, asking mercy with their fright-coloured eyes, seeking revenge with their panic-coloured teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, like a regular, happy... <laughs> Friendly carousel for, for the kids. <laughs> for the kids. Um, Panic-coloured teeth. This character, because that's the thing. Like panic, that doesn't mean anything, and yet it sounds. Yeah. It feels right. It feels like it means something. Yeah. <laughs> um, like this character called Mister Cougar, who is quite thinly sketched compared to Mister Dark. Mm. Like um, he seems to be co-owner of the carnival and yet we don't find out that much about him apart from the fact that he likes to change his age mm-hmm. um so he 
rides this carousel backwards and for every rotation he goes back one year and uh can i can i read the description of him on the carousel oh yes <clears throat> it was jim who first noticed the new thing happening for he kicked will once will looked over and jim nodded frantically at the man in the machine as he came around the next time mr cougar's face was melting like pink wax his hands were becoming doll's hands his bones sank away beneath his clothes his clothes then shrank down to fit his dwindling frame. His face flickered going, and each time around he melted more. Will saw Jim's head shift, circling. The carousel wheeled, a great back-drifting lunar dream, the horses thrusting, the music in gasped after. Or Mr. Cougar, as simple as shadows, as simple as light, as simple as time, got younger and younger and younger. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why it makes him look waxy but uh, I quite like yeah. that it does <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah it's definitely evocative even if uh, not not quite explicable yeah I think that's uh, generally could be said of the whole book <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> um, so yeah Mr Cougar um steps off the carousel as a 12-year-old boy um, who then poses as um, their teacher, Miss Foley's nephew. Um, um, a teacher who has a constant, well, seemingly has a constant torrent of rain in her house. Now, I worked out from the film that this was referring to the beads hanging down over a door frame. <laughs> <laughs> but in the book... <laughs> I thought this was all part of the magical fantasy. Like, oh, she's got a rain room, sure. <laughs> Why not, Robert? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's, she's one of our two uh, female characters. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Are there, is there... In the book... Well, the, the, in the book, the does... Jim have a oh, oh, oh the witch I suppose yeah and I guess I guess Will has a mother I don't know I think Jim has a has a mother probably I mean yeah the, the, all mothers do basically in this book and to a degree in the film is prevent boys from having fun <laughs> basically their role is to embody goodness uh, but of a very boring variety <laughs> yeah and kind of be a bit gossipy. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's a kind of passage where Bradbury he really really shows gossip. What for? He really doesn't like gossip. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's um yeah, gossip is part of the uh, the whole circus of the damned uh, <laughs> rigmarole. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd because the mora- Bradbury seems very sure of his morality in this book. Even while it's very confusingly defined, <laughs> what is good and what is evil, is, is, it seems sometimes quite arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know it when I see it, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so the nephew, sorry, the, the nephew, yeah, who uh, 
who is one of the more effective parts of the film. He is quite um Waxing. quite creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree the casting they've cast uh quite a he's just quite expressionless the kid. Mm. Um but he uh he frames uh tries to frame Jim and Will by like taking them of Miss Foley's jewelry and sort of throwing it out on the lawn where they are and then being like, please, please, or whatever. Um, so, uh, and then he runs off to the carnival again, so Jim and Will follow him. Um, and uh, the nephew jumps on the carousel, like, you know, so that he can go back to being a, a man of 40 or whatever and then be like, well, no, I didn't do anything, like, you know. But uh, Jim and Will sort of, wrestle for the controls will's trying to stop jim jumping on because he's determined to be um like be 18 or something um he's determined to get a few more years on him they uh they grapple with the controls until they break and the carousel begins to spin out of control which uh, sends the nephew slash mr cougar uh, round and round, rotating and rotating until eventually the switch box blows. Um, <laughs> I was just going to read the uh, the description of what happens to Mister Cougar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they he's been the carousel's finally stopped. They walk up. They walked slowly to the merry-go-round. Their sho- their shoes whispering. The shadowy figure lay on the near side on the plank floor. Its face turned away. One hand hung off the platform. It did not belong to a boy. It seemed a huge wax hand shriveled by fire. The man's hair was long, spidery white. It blew like milkweed in the breathing dark. They bent to see the face. The eyes were mummified shut. The nose was collapsed upon gristle. The mouth was a ruined white flower. The petals twisted into a thin wax sheaf over the clenched teeth through which faint bubbling sighed. The man was small inside his clothes, small as a child, but tall, strung out, and old, so old, not ninety, not one hundred, no, not one hundred ten, but one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty impossible years old. <gasps> Such horror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, what it made me think of is shrinkles. <laughs> you, shrinkles. You, remember, you remember shrinkles? No. You put, put them in the oven, they shrink, shrinkles. Oh, okay, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you draw, there's like this strange kind of plastic, like, yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. tracing paper, you draw a design on it, and then, you know, you put it in the oven, and it will shrink down to be a keyring or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm. like, I guess the, a, a similar fate, uh, spoiler, <laughs> uh, a similar fate happens to the illustrated man, um, and... All his tattoos are described as getting smaller, and I just sort of imagined them as being like shrinkles. You know, <laughs> being like a shrinkle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. His body yeah. became shrinkles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what this reminded me of was um, the Indiana Jones film where um, the villain drinks the wrong drinks on the wrong oh, grail, yeah, yeah, and ages instantly, um, which I found quite frightening. Mm, same here. Um, there's a similar effect in in the film of something wicked, but uh, it's a little bit ropier, to be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it really does look like a, a kind of 
mannequin you'd get in a third or fourth rate ghost train. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry that this carnival has no ghost train, Adam. Ah, that's true. Don't worry, actually, I went on a ghost train um, just just last Christmas. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah oh, it, good. It, it was good. And also, like, this really odd... So, at first, I went on this ride, which I thought was going to be a ghost train, and it was actually, like, a CG... Like, what, like a VR ride, right? A VR darkroom mm-hmm. ride. It was called something like, you know, Dr. Flippity Gibbets stupendous adventures through time or something like that and um yeah basically you had to go on the ride with a vr helmet and then i think it probably used to be a ghost train and then you know it wasn't it wasn't cool enough for the kids and so they upgraded it so you have to wear a helmet over your eyes and um yeah it's a whisked you through history but uh, the problem is that obviously it was trying to do quite a complicated narrative for a sort of four or five minute length ride mm. uh, like there's a whole thing of the time machine being sabotaged and so forth but obviously I guess you've only got the length of time that uh, the track of the former ghost train would allow <laughs> yes yeah. and, and so you spend about five seconds maybe ten each time period um, so it was very confusing and overwhelming it's like well okay oh Mayan civilization oh we're in the future oh we're in a place of giant toadstool mushrooms <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah it was quite quite hard hard mm. to make head or tail of to be honest <laughs> but yeah I, I do love ghost trains i always say that if i ever won the lottery i would um philanthropically spend it on a really amazing ghost train basically mm. uh, like so i could design my own monsters uh, and then have people, you know, construct construct <laughs> them for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and sorting out climate change as well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the ghost train could also do that somehow, that would that would be the idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so Mr. Cougar. Um, now um, assumes a new role as Mr. Electrico. Uh, they they move him into an electric chair um, and keep him alive by electricity. Um, I mean, he sounds like one of the X-Men, but he's, you know, it's a bit more ghoulish than that, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to, to Mr. Electrico. But um, he's he's kept in that state for for quite a, a a chunk of the novel. Well, for the rest of the novel, really. Yeah, I mean, um, I, obviously he can't. Maybe that's why we don't really get to know him as well as Mister yeah. Dark, because he, he can't, apart from getting electrocuted, he doesn't get to do very much there. <laughs> um, and you know, it takes them a long while to get the carousel working again. Um, but um I mean it does seem a bit unreasonable. Like, I'm sure, you know, this is Mr. Dark's business partner. Mm-hmm. You'd think, you know, if you were horribly aged, you know, you'd expect your business partner might lay you up in bed or something, right? You know? <laughs> or be like, right, mate, I'm gonna strap you to a chair and just electrocute you constantly. Oh, For thank- entertainment. Yeah, thank thanks, business partner. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, I guess you know, Mister Dark is part of the 
is is part of the show because he's like illustrated man so he's like mr cougar should do his part as well oh that is a fair point like mr cougar can't be all business Mm. yeah fair Um, point i take it back as fair point it's justified (laughs) um and talking about getting suddenly older, this mm. is um, <laughs> re- reflected um, appropriately in the film by the child actors suddenly getting notably older in certain scenes. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I saw this on Wikipedia, but you can really tell that um, <laughs> c- certain scenes, basically Disney wasn't happy with the original cut. Um, Jack <laughs> Clayton had put together so um, they decided that some bits were too scary which I think partly is what makes the film a bit tepid that they clearly mm. took out the scarier bits um, and then reshot certain scenes so um, the scene in the film that's not in the book with all the spiders oh yeah yeah the two kids are about two years older <laughs> <laughs> just suddenly and Part of me was like, oh, that's that's shoddy. And part of me is like, oh, but yes, a very clever embodiment of one of the book's central themes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess, some, yeah, that's that's the discussion they had. They were like, is this too shoddy? No. <laughs> no, actually. Actually. It, actually, it's very clever. It's yeah. very clever. <laughs> we're very clever. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the the carousel must get working again because well, they meet a little girl crying by the side of the road, um, and then realise that she's their teacher, Miss Foley. Um, but in a sort of another aspect of the horror is that sort of she wished to be young again, but in reality, that's left her sort of out of time and place because no one believes who she is and she doesn't have anywhere to go. And as um, is pointed out by um, Will's father in the book, like, she may have the body of a child, but does she still have the brain of an adult? You know, in what way is she young? Does she just uh-huh. look younger? <laughs> you know, is she younger in health? You know, so you know, what what kind of transformation is this? Is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. We don't really know what the terms of this this deal are. Well, I, I think part of the message of the novel is that you can't go home again, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, en- enjoy the present and be good in the present, um, because you know you can't relive your lost opportunities, basically. Yeah. Um. So yeah, don't. Yeah. Mm, and we don't. we get this in them. Um, in, in the figure of um, Will's father, Charles Holloway, um, who um, who feels insecure about his position as a father because he was quite old when Will was born. Um, so he's in his 50s and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm too old to play baseball with him. <laughs> this is big. And what kind of American dad are you if you can't yeah. play baseball with your son? <laughs> too old to play baseball. Um <laughs> so um mr dark sort of he tries to get uh charles to help him find the boys by offering him youth and sort of preying on this insecurity um but but charles doesn't help him um and then this is this is later on in the book i'm just because obviously the mr dark isn't very happy with <laughs> 
Jim and Will for um for aging aging his business partner his business partner so drastically um so towards the end of the book he goes sort of prowling through the town trying to find them i think he's also um, concerned right that they're going to spread the word and say you know that carnival that seems really obviously explicitly evil yeah it's obviously explicitly evil <laughs> 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 like my word how do, how do you not know <laughs> <laughs> what cougar and darks carnival <laughs> Pandemonium Carnival. No. What, the, the, you mean that carnival that goes through the streets playing evil organ music? At 3am. <laughs> why, why I never... Yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Dark ends up sort of prowling through the library looking for the boys who are hiding in a bookcase. Um, and he, he taunts Will with a, a particularly horrible story about Will's mother, which uh, turns out not to be true. That he says that he left her on the merry-go-round going forward. Basically, did what they did to Mr. Cougar. And it, <laughs> this this description, um, she was like a cat with a hairball in her, so big and sticky there was no way to gag it out, no way to scream around the hair coming out of her nostrils and ears and eyes, boy, and her old, old, old. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Is that your texture of the week, or...? Oh, it's not actually. Oh, I, should, um, should we do it? Cause shall, I, shall we? Okay. I feel we've been leaving them right to the end, and I think we should. Oh, <laughs> treat our audiences. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey. Um, hey. Oh, very good. Very um, appropriate. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's not your texture of the week. No, I mean there's so many options. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's really is a uh, so a banquet of textures. A cornucopia of textures. Yeah. Um but I think the one that I'm gonna go for is um It'll be really <laughs> funny if you've if we get the same one now after saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I put down a few a few options okay. in case, but um <laughs> So we haven't talked about it yet, but the uh, the dust witch goes out to find Jim and Will, and she leaves a track on Jim's house um, so that the rest of the carnival can find him. Um, it says it was a track like a snail paints on a sidewalk. It glistened. It was silver slick. But this path left by a gigantic snail that, if existed at all, weighed a hundred pounds. The silver ribbon was a yard across. Staring down at the leaf-filled rain trough, the silver track simmered to the rooftop, then tremored down the other side. <laughs> mm, I did, mm, I slimy. Thought, yeah, I, I, I did think of that one as well. But mm. um, I went for the first description of the circus balloon that the witch uses to hunt in. Mm -hmm. um, so this is when the carnival purse pulls into town in the middle of the night. Um the ringmaster stood in the middle of the land. The balloon, like a vast, mouldy green cheese, stood fixed to the sky, and then darkness came. The last thing Will saw was the balloon swooping down to cloud to cover the moon. 
In the night, he felt the men rush to unseen tasks. He sensed the balloon like a great fat spider fiddling with the lines and poles, rearing a tapestry in the sky. And I think alone, they're very simple descriptions, but I really mm. like the balloon being at once a big mouldy cheese and a fat spider. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think layering those two images onto one another is pretty delicious and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to give a special mention. I don't actually have the quote, but... It's just, it's really bizarre. Um, to um, Olmer, Olmers and Goffs. <laughs> did you, did oh, you notice this bit? Yeah, that was a bit roll dolly, that bit. <laughs> yeah, um, it was just the, the different creatures that populate Will and Jim's dreams. One of them has Olmers and one of them has Goffs. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. all 1980s and listening to Bauhaus and Robert Smith. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one, th one of the other things I really like about the balloon is that it's given a balloon funeral. Oh. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. all, all balloons when they burst should be given a balloon funeral. <laughs> In a very, very long balloon coffin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, thought, I thought that was very charming. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> so what, what, what rides await us? Do we have any more? Um, yeah, um, so, well, I think we're, we're heading kind of to the, to the, to the sideshows now, to like, little oh, tents okay. and the, the people who populate them. Uh, so you've, um, al you've already mentioned the witch, right? So yeah, is the, the dust witch. Is, is she the same as the fortune teller? I got a bit confused on that point. Oh, um, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't think so. I think they're listed separately in okay. the playbill. Um, but um, not yeah, the witch. Um, so she's blind, but she can sort of smell and taste souls. Um, and, yeah, as she said, she, she floats down on her balloon and, uh, and marks Jim's house um, for the carnival to find it. Um, so Will goes after her and ends up throwing an arrowhead at the balloon um, and sends her kind of hurt and spiralling off, but not dead. Um, and she, she reappears when Mr. Dark captures the boys in the library. Um, she's described with her having her seamed black wax sewn shut iguana eyelids and her great proboscis with the nostrils ca caked like tobacco blackened pipe bowls. That's a bit of a tongue twister, but, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> I know I'm reading quite a lot of extracts from this one, but I think it deserves it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 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 plot is fairly flimsy, but really, it's just all about the images. Yeah. Um, so, um, do you want to read the bit where um, she uh, she turns the boys into? into wax no, sculpture no, boys I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite, I've got one more bit I wanted oh, okay. uh, to, read to, to, to read, uh, to read um, 
Yeah, so yeah, you could you could read it, and uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find the other bit I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Darning needle dragonfly, sew up these mouths so they not speak. Touch so, touch so, her thumbnails stabbed, punched, drew, stabbed, punched, drew along their lower upper lips until they were thread pouched shut with invisible thread. Darning needle dragonfly, sew up these ears so they not hear. Cold sand funneled Will's ears, burying her voice. Muffled, far away, fading, she chanted on with a rustle, tick, tickle, tap, flourish of caliper hands. Moss grew in Jim's ears, swiftly sealing him deep. Darning needle dragonfly, sew up these eyes so they not see. Her white-hot fingerprints rolled back their stricken eyeballs to throw the lids down with bangs like great tin doors slammed shut. Will saw a billion flashbulbs explode, then suck to darkness, while the unseen, darning needle insect out beyond somewhere pranced and fizzed like insect drawn to sun-warmed honeypot, as closeted voice stitched off their senses forever and a day beyond. God, it's so good to read aloud as well, and so... Yeah, it really sort of trips off the tongue, like yeah. just the sound of the words and the texture uh-huh. of the words, even more than their meaning, is yeah. just yeah, really delectable. <laughs> Um. I think this is probably why it's very hard to make into a film. Like, I think really it needed to be animated um, mm. because animation has that fluidity of form and that inherent freedom that is harder to get in live action. So then Jack Clayton, however much I quite like him as a director, is a really odd choice. Hmm. Like, you seen any other Clayton films? Um, I'm not sure. What is he? So he directed, most famously, A Room at the Top, which is, you know, a notable 1960s British kitchen sink drama. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, mostly known for his kind of social realism and then later thrillers, basically. Um, right. Yeah, really not someone you'd imagine to be picked for this project, to be honest. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, it's certainly not... A bad director, but just uh, far too, you know, he's got a very sort of straightforward visual style, basically. Mm. Um, whereas this needed something far more phantasmagoric. Um, so I'd like, I would have loved if a, a young Tim Burton, say Tim Burton of Beetlejuice, had directed this. Mm. Um, because, you know, I, I, I just think it needs weird bits of stop motion or... Um, it's horrible. Or, or even, um, I mean, obviously they were long dead by by the point that the film was released, but the Fleischer brothers who animated Betty Boop. Mm-hmm. Um, just because in their animation, everything is in a constant state of flux and transformation. Yeah. Um, creepy, fluid. Yeah, yeah and faces transforming. That, and, faces that yeah. balloon out and sort of rattle bone skeletons. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think what really makes the novel is that kind of abstraction right is mm. the kind of lack of literalness with the language and the way that it's the language almost sort of squirms and moves and wriggles about on the page um, mm-hmm. because you know the themes of the novel don't appeal to me nearly as much I mean as you say uh, it's yeah. <laughs> really a novel about masculinity essentially and mm-hmm. about um I guess the importance of certain masculine virtues, I find it quite distressing, right? Um, that the point at which Wilms 
previously quite gentle and bookish father steps up to the plate is when he repeatedly hits his son. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know it's going to be sort of shaking him out of his complacency to save Jim, but I found it really disturbing. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is the sort of heroic moment as a father sort of hitting his son repeatedly around the head. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, well, and know? shooting a, and firing a rifle to to kill the dust witch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like it seemed. Yeah. I guess I quite liked Will's father. It seemed a shame that for him to be redeemed, he had to become this kind of man of action. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did you have any other thoughts about the book's handling of masculinity, or indeed? Um, the mothers and uh, femininity in this in this book. Uh, well, I mean, it's not very inspiring. Uh, mm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> inspiring a uh, portfolio of roles for the for the women. Um, we have the, as you said, the mothers who uh, sort of there to stop the the boys having fun. Who have the the sort of elderly spinster. Uh, school teacher and um and the witch <laughs> um, so uh some pretty unreconstructed uh, tropes yeah and, and, um, and, and it's not that i you know i can enjoy things that focus on the relationship between fathers and sons as you know i'm a big fan of certainly at least the first few seasons of king of the hill and mm-hmm. i really love the stuff that focuses on the relationship between hank and bobby um, and it actually comes from quite a conservative place, but it does at least kind of problematize it a bit. And, you know, the bits which are most touching are when they kind of meet in the middle and that, you know, Hank kind of appreciates Bobby's more feminine aspects and, you know, his performativity and mm-hmm. the, the fact that he's not like Hank and that they're very different. And obviously, in Kingville, you have the extraordinary character of Peggy. And mm-hmm. I think it's a shame that as King of the Hill goes on and it's a completely different topic, she's going to get <laughs> punished or shamed more. And I think King of the Hill is at its best when a real joy is taken in Peggy's character. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, what I'm saying is that, I, I, you know, I'm not against films or books that focus on masculinity, but it did feel... I think maybe set against the freedom of the language and how inspiring that is, it mm. seemed sadly very traditionalist and conservative in its ideology in a way that sort of seems at odds with the style. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, it does sort of feel like two two separate <laughs> books <laughs> sort of in a way like the um that yeah I mean it's tricky <laughs> because because you know in a way maybe why I like Philip Ridley say is uh, for good or for ill I think there is a genuine degree of deviance in Ridley's personality <laughs> um, which kind of gives it a kind of frisson right mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, that you know Ridley is sort of on the side of misrule and chaos basically mm. 
Um, and it's odd that Bradbury seems to at once, I don't know, yeah, I don't know, like, like, has so much um, imaginary ability to conjure up these kind of phantasmagoric spectacles and yet at the end they just get kind of relegated to freaks who are rightfully cast out into the darkness at the end of the book yeah because i mean he's 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 got the gift of the the grotesque and the and the bizarre like you know it's incredible oh absolutely sort of, you know descriptions but then it's like well that's all wrong and deviant the end <laughs> yeah yeah it really is what the end feels like quite, quite an abrupt end as well yeah um, and i don't know i guess you know like i'm a big fan of the residents and hmm. you know i guess most of the residents 50 odd years of music recording is about trying to explore the the, the the some of the beauties and deviance and exploring when it's wrong and when it's not wrong and you know kind of yeah being able to kind of see where ugliness and beauty intersect mm. and you know exploring that in a way that feels quite exciting I guess mm. sometimes problematic on its own terms but um in a way that I find interesting and I kind of feel that it's almost like Bradbury is sort of undercutting his own impulses, maybe. <laughs> like, mm. that it feels quite invested in these transgressive elements, and then yet they have to be kind of, at a certain point, you know, the toys have to be put back in the box, and the <laughs> box has to be hammered shut and sealed. <laughs> yeah, we have to go back to being boys and men. Y- yeah, and... Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, on, on one level I was touched by the fact that the book seems very invested in goodness and decency. Yeah. But when at the end of the book this goodness and decency gets tied up with shooting shotguns and, uh, you know, dispelling freaks and hitting your son, I just found mm. that quite disappointing, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess as we're, we're, we're sort of there anyway, kind of talking about the freak show, sort of... Oh, the, the the freaks of the of the carnival, um, yeah, not not a progressive take on the freak show. <laughs> um, the uh, the freaks are sort of just referred to as that, and mostly kind of plural and anonymous. Um, yeah, they're only individualised in the most kind of cursory of ways. Yeah, so it's just like just listed by their stage names, like the lava drinker, the skeleton, the dangling man, sort of thing. Um, and and then we and then we have the dwarf um who starts the story as the man who sells lightning rods um but who's then taken by the carnival and sort of squashed into his body sort of squashed into a, a small form and and his his sanity taken um um and Will's father has this uh, passage speculating um that the freaks are are sinners um there's uh, sinners who've traveled so long hoping for deliverance that they've taken on the shape of their original sins the fat man what was he once if i can guess the carnival sense of irony the way they like to weight the scales he was once a ravener of all kinds and varieties of lust no matter, there he lives now anyway, collected up in his bursting skin. Um, 
So so basically the carnival is sort of dishing out Dante's Inferno style punishments um, while the sinners are still alive. Kind of yeah, thing. and it's very much like that the dwarf's physical smallness is an embodiment of his moral smallness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and yeah, that's a very tired trope. I mean, it's something <laughs> in my least favourite uh, Werner Herzog film, even Dwarf Started Small, that he uses there and it's, it's just such a sort of Victorian kind of you know just, just so kind of wrong headed and mm. and lazy as, as well <laughs> right like it's, it's mm. partly the kind of allegorical laziness of it that frustrates me because I feel that the book's rich enough that it just didn't need to do that mm-hmm. like I don't think that really adds anything to it yeah um, and again, like I can see why people have a fascination with freak shows, and I think it can be handled in a better way. You know, maybe it's never going to be completely free of of a certain queasiness um, mm. or a certain whiff of exploitation. I don't know, um, but saying like the Residence Freak Show album. Well, at least, you know, it has a song dedicated to these different characters and it goes into their backstories and we have a sense of them as people, um, you know, with loves and, and heartache and loss and that, yeah, it is a little bit voyeuristic and a little bit, um, you know, deliberately carnivalesque and, but at the same time, it does feel like at least, like, like the film Freaks say, um, mm. Not a perfect film, but it does seem to be invested in the humanity of these performers, whereas you don't really get that sense in this novel. Which is a good... I mean, because Freaks is a very old film, so... Yeah, older, it's not older like, than this book. Yeah, so it's not like, oh, this was before people were thinking that, because, you know, Freaks had some aspect of that in the 20s or whatever. Yeah, I think late 20s or early 30s, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that's disappointing um i think they are really there as flavor text basically mm. or you know sort of part of the maison sen um but as i said i think what saves the novel is its kind of um language use and the kind of its abstraction basically mm-hmm. so, um you know basically it's the novel and so the novel's at its worst when it's being really literal minded and mm-hmm. heavily allegorical. Um, and then sadly, the film mostly occupies a very literal position. So it kind of <laughs> only captures, uh, the least good aspects of the book mostly, apart from some good performances. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I do, I always like Jonathan Price. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you're a big fan of Brazil. Yes. So. And yeah. he, he does make a, a splendidly sinister, um, and hate filled Mr. Dark. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Striding about wickedly. Your books can hurt me, old man. Yes, old. Because your heart is old. Listen to it. You tell me where the boys are hiding, and I can make you young again. I could turn your years back for you to, let's say, 30. And speak, or you've missed it. Going. It's gone. 31. 
32. 32? Year of a man's prime, loved by many women. You might still learn to swim. 32, going strong. 33? 34? 35? 35? Oh, 35. Time to father a family. Build a fortune. 35. A year when you could run up the stairs without panting for breath. 35? Gone. 36? 37? Where are they? 38? Here, your heart. Here, my count. 39. Now. 39. A fine year. Still young. 39. Oh, oh, 40. 40. And here, your old, old heart. Dad, no! Don't listen! Um, Adam, do you have a uh, claim of the week? Claim of the week? Um, I, I do. Do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, um... We're doing this now. We're doing this now. Claim of the Week has become a thing. It, it, it's been buoyed up by its own gaseous self-belief in, <laughs> <laughs> in, in a regular instalment. <laughs> um, so my my Claim of the Week um, is when Charles Holloway, i.e. Will's dad, uh, explains uh, who the Autumn people are, who seem to be, well, Mr. Dark and his cronies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Charles Holloway describes the autumn people like this. For some, autumn comes early, stays late through life, where October follows September and November touches October, and then instead of December and Christ's birth, there is no Bethlehem star, no rejoicing, but September comes again and old October, and so on down the years, with no winter, spring, or reviving summer. For these beings, fall is the ever-normal season, the only weather, there be no choice beyond. Where do they come from? The dust. Where do they go? The grave. Does blood stir their veins? No, the night wind. What ticks in their head? The worm. What speaks from their mouth? The toad. What sees from their eye? The snake. What hears with their eye? The abyss between the stars. They sift the human storm for souls, eat flesh of reason, fill tombs with sinners. They frenzy forth, in guts they beat us and scurry, creep, thread, filter, motion, make all moons sullen, and surely cloud all clear on waters. The spider web hears them, trembles, breaks. Such are the autumn people. Beware of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Charlie, buddy. I mean, I think it sounds like a bit of guesswork's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> what ticks yeah, in their head? I don't know. Worms! <laughs> That's a bit Poe, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is a bit Poe. Um, <laughs> He's sort of gone on to f- full on preacher man mode. <laughs> <laughs> he does do uh, a fair bit of uh, monologuing <laughs> in this. Um, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, mine is also Charles Holloway. Um, oh gosh, yeah, he is—he's a claim-making. Man. He's a, a claim-making man. But um, my one is um, <laughs> uh, Mr. Dark uh, tattoos on his palms uh, a, a the faces each of uh, Jim and Will, 
and then goes and shows them to Charles and says, who are these boys? And um, Charles goes, oh, well, uh, that one is uh, Milton Bloomquist and the other is Avery Johnson and they have both just moved to Milwaukee. <laughs> uh, yeah, I good quite like, enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good bit of improv, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Milton Bloomquist. <laughs> um... <laughs> I have to say also before we finish um, in defence of the film I thought the parade scene was pretty good mm. as as it goes like I mean it would have been better animated and with some gloopy stop motion but um, <laughs> I say Price was quite sinister and I quite liked them hiding uh, below the street uh, looking up through the grate yeah What the hell's going on? Uh, you got any other sort of thoughts around the book or the film? Um, I, I think I am out of thoughts. I think I've said all my thoughts. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a thought, <laughs> thoughts exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We haven't actually. We haven't quite. We haven't mentioned the um how they beat the beat back the uh, the carnival oh well that's because I didn't really understand it to be honest <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like yeah. in, the, in the film there's just lots of lights and, and lasers or something <laughs> well well Charles Holloway works out that you have to laugh at them and that oh, and, that, and that kills yeah. them so, and so it's, like, it's like it's like the evil Evil kitchen sponge and goosebumps. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to laugh at the evil sponge and and at the evil witch. Um. Mm, I don't know though because it's confusing because there's a bit earlier. Like you're obviously right, but then there's a bit earlier when Charles says that you should be suspicious of people who are laughing too much because they're probably evil. Oh, like the, you what? know, there's a bit when Will's like, "Oh, does that mean good people are happy?" He's like, "No, no, quite the opposite. Actually, the happiest people are probably uh, happy because they've done loads of terrible stuff. So if you <laughs> see someone too happy, they're a wrong one." Well, yeah, that's a mixed message. Yeah, so maybe hmm. you've got to be like guilt-ridden and not really happy, and then pretend to be happy when faced with evil people. And if you kind of pretend really hard, that. <laughs> you sort of become happy in this really kind of manic, weird way, um, <laughs> yeah. which becomes quite violent. 
<laughs> good. I'm glad we sorted that. Out. <laughs> yeah, go, 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 yeah. Come, come for the language. Stay for the confused messages. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think to read, you know, it's. <laughs> I'm sure there's some wisdom between its pages, but mostly it's just kind of ghoulish fun, really. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um. um so, yeah, um, our theme music is by Maki Yamazaki. Our outro music is by Joe Kelly. Our artwork's by Letty Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at, at StillScaredPod or email us at StillScaredPodcast at gmail.com. Do you have a signer for us? I, I do, I do. No, <laughs> I'm not even making up on the spot this week. <laughs> By the pricking of my thumbs, leave us a review, our creepy chums. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time, speaky kids. Bye. Bye.